And good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Siabulela Nana. I am part of the pastoral team here at Everyday People, and it is my privilege this morning to be serving you with the Word of God. So we turn this morning to the first chapter of Mark's Gospel, reading only verses 15. Mark chapter 1, reading verses 15. Let's read together. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. I'm sure you have spotted that our text is made up of two statements and followed by two exhortations or demands. Two statements, two exhortations. That's how our text is made up of this morning. Let's pray together. Your kingdom come, your will be done in us and through us here on earth. Amen. So last Sunday, we began a new series of sermons called Unshakable Hope. And Arno took us through the certainty of hope. And for this morning, the title of my message is Hope for the Future. And it is indeed a tremendous subject, and I pray that as we explore it, it will enable us to lift up our heads above and beyond this world. That it will enable us to lift up our heads above and beyond here and now. You see, because what seems to have happened is that us too, as Christ followers, we have hanged all our hopes on what this world can offer. And when this world did what this world has always done, which is showing signs of uncertainty and instability, our hope came crumbling down. Our hope was shaken. We found ourselves walking through the valley of hopelessness and despair. So it is my prayer this morning that we will learn to live in this world, but not for this world. Scripture speaks of two ages. It speaks of this age, which means this world as we know it. And it speaks of the age to come, which means the kingdom of God, which was ushered by Jesus when he came. And it will be fully realized when Jesus comes again. However, again and again, Scripture insists upon us to live in this age in anticipation of the age to come. To live in this age reflecting the age to come. So that's my prayer for us this morning. And that's what Mark is doing in this text which we've read as he speaks about the announcement of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near, he says. The kingdom of God is upon us. He does two things. Not, he tells us that the kingdom of God, not only does it present us with enormous benefits, but it also confronts us with demands. 
It demands us to model the kingdom lifestyle. It demands us to offer this world the only realistic and alternative society, a society under God's rulership. So that's my prayer. Secondly, my prayer as we come to this message this morning is that we as both as individuals and church corporately, we will be able to answer that very big question. How are we to live our everyday life in light of that ultimate and glorious reality of a world in future where all suffering is gone, every tear wiped from our eyes. And Tim Keller says, this is a life-transforming hope. And I want to ask you this morning, do you have this hope? If you're here, you're a visitor, maybe you have never embraced Christ, do you have this hope? But if you're here this morning, you are a Christ follower, I want to ask you again, do you believe that you are headed for a future of endless joy? Or maybe there is another question, put it differently. Is life in this world all the happiness you will ever get? Now I know the answer to that question and it is the right answer because it is based on scripture. The answer to that question is no. Life in this world is not all the happiness we can ever get if we believe in Jesus. I'm afraid, however, that right answers have not always translated to right actions. While on the one hand we say, no, life in this world is not all the happiness we can ever get, our actions and our lifestyle betrays us. Our action says, yes. Life in this world is all the happiness I can ever get and it's all the happiness I want. We are easily enticed and pleased by the temporary pleasures this world offers us. And we see that not in what we say, but in how we live. Some of the anxieties that we carry have nothing to do with the work of God, with what God has called us. They've got something to do with us feeling our hopes and our ambitions as meshing in front of us, and we have no power to control it. Don Carson, D.A. Carson, a Baptist theologian, tells a story of a woman who was a missions coordinator in her denomination. In other words, her church was a mission-sending church. Literally, they had missionaries all over the world, and her job was to serve as a link between the sending church and the missionaries who were scattered around the world. And now she fell ill. They discovered that she contracted cancer, and it was a vicious one. Now, the church invited a prayer evening for her, and 286 people showed up. That's a mark of her influence, both in the church and in the city. And in that evening, they all prayed earnestly and pleading with God for God to heal this woman. They all made their way to the stage 
praying along these lines. Lord, you said when two or three gather together, you hear them, and there is 286 of us tonight, and we ask you to please heal this woman. Her life is important, is very significant to the advancement of the gospel, not only in this church, but in the church globally. So we ask you to heal her. That was the chorus that was sang by everyone that night until one member decided to turn to the next page of the hymn book. And her prayer went along these lines. Dear Heavenly Father, we do ask that you heal our sister Mary. But if not, teach her to die well. Give her anticipation for the glory to be revealed. Free her from the earth shackles. Make her homesick for heaven. Teach her to die well. So what's your point with that story, Sia, in case you're wondering? Well, my point with this story, I wonder if the church have not forgotten that part of discipleship is to train people to face death well. To face death with hope. You see, death affects all of us, both believers and non-believers, but the way in which we face it determines the kind of hope we have for the future. That's my point for telling you that story. Church history is full of men and women who put us to shame in the way in which they face death. Some of them, as they were being killed in a very ugly way, they were not cursing, but they were praying and praising God, counting themselves unworthy to be dying for the name of Jesus. Could that be me? No, I don't think so. If I look at how I have been anxious in these days, not necessarily for death, but for the way life is going. Where is the future in this world if things are going this way? They put you and I to shame. It was John Stott, while lying in hospital, who felt the need to write a letter to his doctors. I think he suspected that they may want to fight for him to linger on in this life, which I, as I assume that's what every doctor wants for their patients. And so he writes them this letter to liberate them of this responsibility. He says to them, this, the reason that I don't wish to cling to this life is that I have a living hope of yet more glorious life beyond death. And I do not wish to be unnecessarily hindered from it. I have yet a glorious let me summarize and just share, tell you what I've done so far and then move to the next point. What I've tried to do as I introduce my message to you this morning, I've tried to expound the nature of our hope. That's what I've done. How, is, how does it look like? I've done that by giving you a vision for the ultimate future. And we need to recover this vision because it transforms how we live our lives here and now. If we have this vision for the ultimate and glorious future, it will transform how you live as you walk out of this 
the, of this church this afternoon, that vision will transform. As you face your week tomorrow, that, that vision will transform how you live your life. We need to recover it. I've also tried to remind you that our hope is safe and guaranteed. It is ultimate. It's already accomplished. It is safe. It is in heaven. Therefore, our hope is above and beyond this world. It is free from the weather changes. It is free from the economic instability. It is free from political uncertainties. It is free from disease and pandemics. That is the nature of your hope. Above and beyond this world. Tim Keller says it's a life-transforming hope. The great apostle Peter calls it a living hope. That's the nature of our hope. Now I move from the nature of our hope to the basis of our hope. Where is our hope founded? Where is this living, life-transforming hope founded, Sia? I'm glad you ask. Because we come now to the gist of my message. This hope is found on the cross of Christ. It is found on the death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And that's my next point, bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's where our hope is found. And I want to emphasize as we launch here in this second part that not one without the other, not his death without his resurrection, not his resurrection without his death. You see, his resurrection without his death is almost fake news. His resurrection without his death is meaningless. We've seen some kind of resurrection here in South Africa, somewhere in Joburg, in one of the most popular churches. I believe the pastor, he's, he's got a case against him. So, his resurrection without his death, it accomplished nothing. And at the same time, his death without his resurrection. In fact, he's... We, we, we insist, I grew up in a church where we, we used to recite the Apostles' Creed and the emphasis on his death and his burial and his, and, the, and his resurrection and ascension is big, it's part of Christian theology. So as believers, we insist that he died and he was buried. In other words, his death was certified, that indeed Jesus of Nazareth has died, and he was buried according to the Jewish custom. Then on the third day, he arose from the dead. And his death without his resurrection, Paul says, our faith is in vain. He says, we are living in sin without his resurrection. So in his death, Jesus took away God's judgment, which our sin provoked. In his resurrection, he gave us a resounding victory over Satan and death. We need to have both. Now, as we come here, I want to own up right from the beginning. 
and tell you that we have based this series of sermons on Tim Keller's book, on Tim Keller's latest book called Hope in Times of Fear, The Resurrection and Meaning of Easter. That's where these 12 sermons will be preaching are based, based on. Now, my message this morning is based on chapter 2 of that book. Now, in chapter 2, Kela is not trying to convince us whether or not the resurrection has taken place. He's already dealt with that. What he's concerned with in this chapter, which forms part of my message, is the so what question of the resurrection. And he builds his entire argument of that chapter on that question, the so what question of the resurrection. In other words, Keller says, if resurrection really happened, what does it mean? What does it mean to you and I? He is, I like what he says. He says, if it only happened in, on, in order to prove that God exists, it doesn't achieve much for you. Now, you're probably saying to yourself, see, I, as much as I admire and respect Keller, but I'm also finding myself conflicted. Is that question, the so what question of the resurrection, an appropriate question to ask? Is it not a questioning question? A question that can undermine this glorious and historical event which really happened and we know. And my answer to you is, not only it's an appropriate question, but it is also essential for our Christian discipleship. It is also essential for our maturity in Christ. Because what this question does, it sharpens the needle from the general arguments about resurrection to specific and practical benefits of the resurrection. It says to us, resurrection is not an abstract for debate. It is a reality to affect how we live as a result. It's not something for academics to debate. It is a reality. I like Eugene Peterson, the way he puts it. He says, to be a Christ follower is to practice resurrection. So as you walk out this morning, that's what you will be doing. You will be practicing rest. As we partake in this meal, we are practicing resurrection. We are working out what Christ has done in us and through us in the resurrection. So that question is key to us understanding the benefits, the fruits, and the results of the resurrection. And I have only two to suggest this morning. And I hope you take them with you. The first result or benefit of the resurrection is that resurrection changes everything. Now, you know that, you, you, you can see me, that English is not my first language. In fact, you can hear me as I smash it and butcher it and break it. You probably feel like, where did they get this guy? Anyway, so you know now, I've told you, ah, it's not my first language. If I were to put you in my own context, you speak my language, I would be like, where did they get this one? Anyway, so that was a joke. <coughs> 
they told me in the school I went to, that is the village school, again, don't be critical of them if they are wrong, that there is what you call present continuous tense. And that statement to me seems to be part, to be there in that present. Resurrection changes everything. It's something that is happening. It's, it's continuous. But resurrection changed something. It changed the storyline on that first Easter Sunday. Remember that crucifixion was kind of punishment set apart for those who've committed scandalous things in the society. So here was the Son of God, innocent Son of God, associated with thieves, thieves and murderers, having done nothing. He died death of shame. He died death of public humiliation. But there was something else associated with Jesus' crucifixion, that he was a threat to the religious institution of the day, so they wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to eliminate him. So crucifixion was their celebration. He's gone. We can do business as we know it. And resurrection came and said, you are wrong. It has not stopped to change the, the storyline of everyone who comes to Jesus. Of everyone, according to our text, who repent and believe. Resurrection has not stopped changing their narrative, their storyline. It continues. So resurrection changes what seems something that was ugly into something beautiful. It was Peter standing in front of the religious authorities in, in Acts chapter 4. He says to them, this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised him from the dead. This Jesus whom, in other words, Peter was saying to them, guys, you're missing something here. You think you can stop us. This thing is bigger than you. What you see here is post the cross. You thought you've eliminated him. No, he's alive. He is at work through us and in us. Similar words were used in the Old Testament, Genesis 50 verses 20, by Joseph summarizing his whole life. He says to them, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good so that these people you see today are being saved. So resurrection is victory over evil. If you were there on Good Friday, you walked away saying, evil overcame, overcame good. But on Sunday, God showed up and victory and, and evil was smashed down publicly. Tony Campolo made a very popular sermon in his groveling voice and American accent. Today is Friday, but Sunday is coming. N.T. Wright says, resurrection says to us that God, who we believe and in whom we see Jesus, 
is the God who can take the very worst thing that possible could happen and transform it into something good. Resurrection changes everything. And it continues to change. You remember on that first Easter Sunday, there was Mary standing outside the tomb, weeping. And Jesus shows up and Mary doesn't recognize him. And he asks her, woman, why are you weeping? And this was not the first time this question asked of Mary. She was asked this question earlier on inside the tomb by the two angels, woman, why are you weeping? Is that you this morning? Do you find yourself alone? Because Peter and John have left in despair. They can't see the body. They see the stone is rolled away. The linen is nicely folded. But where is Jesus? And they left in despair. Mary stood alone, weeping. If that's you today, resurrection can change it. My second takeaway and benefit of the resurrection is that resurrection brought us a new creation. You see, the sin of Adam and Eve brought eternal condemnation and judgment to this world. And when Jesus stepped in, Hebrews says, he overcame death with death. When he did that, he ushered a new era, a new beginning. We call it a new normal was ushered when Jesus resurrected. This is what makes it new normal, is that New Testament tells us that resurrection is the first, first fruits of the firstborn in the new creation. What does that mean? It means his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. That's what it means. There is a beautiful Kosahim. I can't sing it. I can sing it, but I can't. it won't help you if I sing it. I sing it well when I'm alone in the shower. But does this mean then, Sia, we shouldn't fear death? No, it doesn't mean that. The scripture speaks of death as the last enemy. Still is an enemy. It is the last enemy to be destroyed. But the way in which we need to see death is that it's not the end, the termination of our life, but it is the end of our pilgrimage on this side of eternity and the beginning of new life. Pilgrimage means journey. It's the end of my journey here on earth and it's the beginning of life better. It is to be with Christ. And Paul says, which is far better. That's what death means to you and I. And that's what the, the season, the new season, Jesus launched. His resurrection brought harmony to his creation. Isaiah 6 talks about the lamb together with a wolf. The leopard together with goat. Cows feeding with bears. Children leading wild animals, and they do nothing in them. That's not what we're going to do when we leave this service. We're not going to go to the zoo 
and ask our children to lead the lions. That is not yet realized. It's been ushered, but it's not yet our reality. In the meantime, we live in the world that is groaning, that is yearning for that day to come. That's where we are in the meantime. We are in the waiting area for that day to come where the wolf and the, cat and the goat will eat together, where the children will usher the lions and they won't harm him. It's not yet. That's why we are afraid of the pandemic. But we have yet a glorious life. So those were two points. The nature of our hope that should transform how we live our lives. The basis of our hope that helps us to face difficulties with confidence that we stand upon the resurrection which changes everything. And that brings us to this table. And I don't need to expound this table because this is one of the benefits of the cross. This is us practicing the resurrection. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and they're going to lead us in a hymn that helps us to do exactly that, to come under the cross and look at Jesus. We are invited to come and see his head, his hands, his feet. And I like Charles Wesley, the way he, he puts it, he says, there on the cross, sorrow and love met together and they produce our salvation. So let's make our way to those little elements that we have and we will eat and drink together and after that we will stand and respond in the song that we're singing.